0: Good afternoon and welcome to today's CME activity. There is no commercial support. The speakers and planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with any commercial interests. To receive your credit today, please answer the survey evaluation after the activity. If you're watching online, the evaluation link will be listed in the description section of the video. And if you have a question, please enter it into the q and um, chat bubble if you're viewing online. And if you're in the room, raise your hand and we will bring the microphone over to you. So it is my pleasure today to introduce Drs. Meredith Pickett and Helen Ransom. Dr. Pickett serves on the NGHS inpatient palliative consult team in Gainesville. She received her BS from Sanford University her doctorate from West Virginia School of Osteopathic Medicine and completed her family medicine residency at St. Vincent's East in Birmingham, Alabama, before serving as a rural primary care attending for five years. During that time, she achieved certification through the Hospice Medical Director Certification Board, and in 2018, she moved to Richmond for her Hospice and Palliative Medicine Fellowship at the Virginia Commonwealth University. In addition to her current role on the inpatient palliative consult team, she serves as the program director for the NGMC Hospice and Palliative Medicine Fellowship with its inaugural class to begin this summer um, in 2023. Dr. Ransom is the clinical ethicist for Northeast Georgia Health System. In her current role, she provides leadership and resources to promote clinical ethics, consultation, education, and policy development. Dr. Ransom received her BS from Tuskegee University in biology, her master's in philosophy from the University of Southern Mississippi, and her doctor of healthcare ethics from Duquesne University. Dr. Ransom also completed a fellowship in clinical ethics at Bon Secours Richmond Health System in Richmond, Virginia. Join me in welcoming Dr. Pickett and Dr. Ransom. All right,
1: thank you all for that very warm welcome. Uh, So let's see here, so we have our statement. Um, All the paperwork is in. So if you're getting credits, please do what you have to do to get those credits in. Uh, If you have to sit
2: through it, you deserve the credit for it, so. Yes,
1: please do it. All right. Um, Before we get started, we would like to give a special thanks to Angie Caton who helped us with the nursing portion as far as content and also the credit process. So, you know, if you're a nurse and you're getting credits, please take a moment and thank Angie. <laughs> All right, so our objectives for today's talk, um, this is, this is, I guess our second time doing this talk, I had to pause because we've had maybe many conversations with people on the side about this. And so because of that, we were like, maybe we should do a part two to this. So we want to still go over, you know, what is in the post, um, how you should, you know, go through the process of engaging your patients and having those conversations understanding the role and role here is important, not only just the role of the form, but also engaging persons and staff and how everyone plays a role in the post process. Um, And also probably most importantly, uh, Dr. Pickett can definitely talk about this and, and that is recognizing when is the post appropriate. So, dealing with the overall ethics or ethical concepts of POST. You know, when we think about the idea of autonomy, the POST form does give patients an opportunity to voice their concerns. But additionally, it goes further um, in that, yes, I have the ability to make those decisions for myself, but my decisions are also dependent upon others. Uh, being able to follow, and it's a community effort. Making sure that not only you know, or my voice is my voice being heard or being outlined in the post form, but that also I'm having conversations with people. Um, and of course, with the post form, you need the physician to sign it. And so there is definitely a process of a shared decision-making uh, communication style that's going on because patients are depending on your expertise in order to determine what is most appropriate in the post within the concept of beneficence, you know, as far as not doing any harm, I like to think of this as kindness in action and making sure that there is a concerted effort not to, you know, bring upon any harm or any bad things to the patient unnecessarily. Um, with I guess, kind of continuing that whole thought as far as with the concept of uh, non-maleficence, and that is making sure that we are, again, not doing anything intentionally bad with the patient, uh, not recommending things that will harm the patient, uh, and being mindful of the plan of care, the goals of care conversations. And within the principle of justice, um, this is one that I Can be tricky because, you know, as far as in its basic form, we're thinking about um, how, how best to make sure that everyone has access or making sure that people have resources. But in taking a step back and just thinking about the one on one conversations that you have with your patient and ensuring that you're doing the best that you can for them to meet their needs. And I think the pulse is important with that. And then also with the principle of double effect. And so again, this is kind of continuing that conversation about harm, but making sure that you're not um, recommending something uh, that's intended for harm, that you're doing the direct harm. For instance, if you're recommending a medication, that say if the medication, if a side effect is that right there, uh, you don't want that to happen. but that was unintended. Um, So I think that's kind of the double effect in action, if you will. Um, And I think overall, just wanna make sure that we are having conversations and continuing to have conversations about the post and advanced directive uh, if we were to look at the two, and we have the slide here as so comparing, how is the post different from advanced directive? Um, I guess probably something that's not listed is that the post is shorter. It's a two-page document, front and back. Um, the post is done at a phase of one's life where, I guess, they are, I guess, sick. I guess, what are the They're sick, they're sick. That makes
2: sense. Um, So a POST is intended for folks who have a diagnosis of dementia, or whose life expectancy is a year or less. Now, don't get too caught up on that. And I always appreciate my learners who say, What if you don't know? What if you're wrong? We don't say, whoop, it's been 365 days. Either you're going to have to die or I'm going to need that form back. That's not how it works. (laughs) Um, And we have other things that we experience in healthcare that are the same way. You know, We talk about um, one of the, um, not a solid benchmark, but one of the thoughts that go through our head is if someone has a life expectancy of six months or less, are they appropriate for hospice care? We know that things with prognosis are an estimate. We know that you can't punch it into a calculator and know exactly how long they have and have their funeral arrangements made for that day and that time. Um, And so it's okay. Um, It's okay to be close to that estimate. It's okay to say, hey, I'm not 100% sure. First of all, if you need help prognosticating for someone, ask around, see if you can get somebody, get another consultant to help and kind of weigh in and you work through that together to provide the best information we can for a patient or family. But with the dementia piece, it's also important because these are folks who their ability to participate in a conversation about what's important to them is in a progressive fashion going to fade away from them and fade away from their families. So even that Helen and I will discuss over and over again about decision-making capacity, does somebody have the ability to go through all these pros and cons about what we're asking them to do? Maybe not. But they can tell you what they like and what they don't like, and what's important to them and what's not important to them. And so, allowing them to engage in that conversation to the level that they're able is extremely important, which is why the dementia um, diagnosis is also included in Pulse Eligibility.
1: Yes. And I guess to go a little bit further, if you were just looking at the documents themselves, uh, advanced directives are intended to be a part of a conversation earlier in one's life. Ideally, uh, when someone turns 18, if you are competent adult, you should complete an advanced directive. And I'm quite sure everyone here did that. It's like, okay, you know, what is it? At 16, you get your driver's license. At 18, I fill out an advanced directive.
2: I registered to vote and I filled out my advanced directive. Yeah, there you That's go. how it should. We'll have them pass it out of the d
1: <laughs> Something like that. Something like that. Um, Now, with an advanced directive, um, there is an opportunity to provide more details concerning end-of-life choices. Uh, The Pulse is intended to be a physician's order that follows the patient. Um, And it's intended, again, like I said, it's a front and back piece of um, paper, and it's intended to be that way, so that way people can look at it and see clearly what is marked uh, advanced directives sometimes can require a little bit of interpretation. I'm oftentimes consulted to be an advanced directive interpreter uh, of sorts. Um, and uh, it's important to say here too that while you know it's forced with the physician's order, yes, that's with the post. Um, the advanced directive portion of it, um, as far as here, we do have rules concerning who can be a witness um, as far as, who can sign the documentation and everything like that at the bottom. And I know that's hard to see, but the most important part of us coming back here for part two is to really encourage that everyone is a part or should be a part of the conversation concerning the continuum and having the conversation about advanced care planning. Um, Often, when I'm attending rounds, the conversation will come up, you know, what does this patient have an advanced directive, and as far as the qualifiers that Dr. Pickett mentioned, sometimes those things are mentioned, and then I'll ask, well, you know, maybe should we, you know, bring up the conversation And probably the numbers I get scared look, if I had a dollar for each time, I could probably fill up my tank with gas. Um, so that's really kind of saying a lot, especially with gas being almost $4 a gallon. But to that point, I think that the more that we talk about these things, the more that we make sure that we are informed and ensuring that we are doing or presenting information in a clear manner to our patients, that they have the best information to make an informed decision. And also for us, if we are confident in the information, if we too can present that information in a way that we can get behind, I think that that's important too. And so just really understanding that if we're all on the same page, if we're all having access to the same information, then that makes this conversation easier to have and easier to engage with with our patients and with their families and health care agents. And some of it, too, is just really the more we talk about it, the more we get used to it, the more we can understand and, be, I guess, kind of speak from the same uh, book, if you will, um, using the same terminology.
2: I think that that concept is so important even in the most informal of settings. And we talk about all the time at the hospital, we're all in this together and deep interdependence and I can't do my job without you. And those are all great things to say. (laughs) But I think sometimes we kind of assume that that's maybe more of a formal process than it is. And so a lot of times an ethicist, a palliator, a hospitalist will go into a room and we're not just having the conversation that we're having with them, we're rehashing the conversation they've had with so many other folks, (laughs) EVS, their nurse, a tech, a hairdresser who came by to visit them the night before. So a lot of times we are either building upon a conversation that someone else on the care team or just a part of that person's team in life in general, we're building on top of that conversation or in some cases, we're having to backtrack and undo a lot of that. So that's not to place undue burden on you to be like, "Oh, I can't say anything because if I say anything, it could mess up our conversation." No, it's just important that we acknowledge how valuable every single one of those conversations are, regardless of what your function is here at the hospital or in clinic or what have you. Um, that nothing that you say is terribly insignificant to a patient or to their family. And you never know when that's going to come back up again. It may be a story patients here at hospital day 45, nobody's heard that story at all. And then all of a sudden I sit down, they're like, well, the second day we came in, we had a conversation with a real nice blonde fella and I don't know what 30 minutes later, we're able to say, okay, well, let's acknowledge that, move on. So um, I I like that. I think this go around, we're kind of sitting and saying, I know this is a physician order and I get that but like how many hands not only touch this paper, but how many mouths touch this conversation that we need to be addressing? Yes.
1: And in thinking through as far as the number of people who engage in this conversation, um, I've used the word continuum a few times. And so this slide here, I think really just lays it out as far as how in an ideal situation, how the conversation should go, when the conversation should begin. Um, And we have to keep in mind, too, that this is just a uh, a snapshot. Uh, And the age, you know, we have started at 18, but as far as diagnosed with a serious or chronic um, progressive illness, that can happen at any stage. Um, It can happen, you know, at 34, at 58, it's 78. Um, so it, it just, you know, really just being mindful of these conversations. Um, because sometimes when I'm consulted, it becomes a l- little frustrating when we hear that, okay, this patient has been going through this um, progressive illness for a few months. And no one has had the conversation. So let's get palliative involved so that we can have a goes of care conversation. And I know Dr. Pickett loves um, being brought into those. Or when you know, I'm asked to have a goes of care conversation, I'm like, whoa, that that's outside of me. Uh, but but I think that again, the more that we talk about this, the more that we engage with these conversations, I think the easier. And I'm being a little cheeky with easier, um, but hopefully the easier that it will become uh, for us. Um, I think that maybe part of, and I know that we'll get into some of this a little bit later, but I'm just speaking from an experience, reaching out to someone who last year, they didn't know much about the after a company. They reached out and said, Hey, I've done three this, you know, since the last uh, time you all did the presentation. I'm like, Okay, that's great. And for them to go from zero to three, I take that as a win, is because they have started incorporating this conversation into their interactions with their patients. And that's really all that we want you to do. And we want you to do it correctly. And we'll get into the procedure parts of all this too. Uh, But I think just the more, you know, it's kind of, you know, I feel like if I had another graphic or something, it would be a rainbow. The more, you know, Um,
3: hopefully the better with that. And with
1: the post in law and you, so it's like, I have to acknowledge at least the hurdle that popped into my mind. Um, This is something that is supported by Georgia law. The hurdle that popped into my mind is like wanting to make sure that, yes, we are encouraging you to do something that is supported by Georgia law. We're not in, you know, presenting anything that will have you break the law. Um, I think that this is important because when people, uh, and I'm just thinking about where I worked previously, which was outside of Georgia, there was a lot of concern about the Pulse form because people would see the name of a physician, maybe they didn't know, and they're like, well, I don't know this person. You know, I don't feel comfortable following this order. And as we see here from the verbiage, uh, the post is a physician's order. It is presented or supposed to be presented, you know, in good faith um, and making sure that, again, if you see that it's signed and everything is, and you follow it, we have the law there, you know, to provide that uh, protection. Um, and I don't know if anyone from Risk is on the line. You know, they can give us any insight, but we have the law, at least, you know, behind us as far well as
2: with the post form. Now, you certainly have the right to, if there's something on that that concerns you, not concerns you from the standpoint of that's not what I would do for myself. We're going to take that baggage and set it over here to the side. But if you see something that you're like, this does not sound right. There's something about this that's different. And an example that sometimes I give folks is, you know, everybody's praying for the miracle. If you will, they're hoping that they're the one who gets the cure. They're the one who beats the odds. They're the one who gets better. What if they are, what if they completed a pulse? life change? And I've told the residents this several times when someone gets that new lease on life, they have this new opportunity they're not usually sitting down and saying, you know what I need to do? Let's have a girls' night and I'll go through our advance directives again and make sure that we cover this all up. No, they're out going, to, you know, taking these awesome beach vacations. They're, you know, starting families or doing all these cool things that they can. And often the documentation doesn't follow suit. So if you see somebody who's had a big life change and you've got a family member who's like, yeah, we thought this was going to happen and it didn't. And now there's something different, da, 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 da. It's okay to stop and say, I know I have this paused. Let me stop and and make sure that this is still the space that we sit in now. Um, When you complete a post one time, it doesn't mean that that can never be done again. It doesn't mean that your life circumstance might not change. Um, And so it's important to keep that common sense piece to say, yes, this is an order. Yes, someone else signed it. Yes, it's important. But I also have a brain in my head. And I also have a family that's telling me they're not sure that that's right. So maybe I should take a beat and double check if I can.
1: And that's why I went back to this slide here, because as much as I was talking about, it's as the continuum, and I did probably present it as, you know, we're riding the wave and moving full steam ahead. uh, To Dr. Pickett's point, uh, there are, there will be points in life where you will have to pivot and reassess, and that, again, is a part of the whole continuum of life. So, yes, good point, good point. And I guess maybe a recommendation for girls' night, you know, we're (laughs) going (laughs) to.
2: That's not what you do for your girls' night. (laughs) Am I doing it wrong?
1: Yeah, you are. You are. There's not many petties in advanced directives. So again, just kind of building upon Georgia law, we also have our policy, which does give information concerning the Pulse form and also definitely highlighting what Dr. Pickett uh, made a note of. If you see something that is concerning that may Paul, by all means, you know, as far as, you know, asking the question, clarifying, you know, certain things, that it's definitely, you know, something that you should take an opportunity to do. Um, But just know that, again, we do have law and policy to support us um, in following the Pulse form. And as far as the key elements, I think this is where we hand it off. Yeah, that's
2: fine. So some important things to know about the pulse as well. We've got a little hot pink highlight there that an authorized person. So <laughs> when the one of the big differences between a pulse and an advanced directive is that only a patient with capacity can complete their own advanced directive. However, a patient with capacity can complete a pulse so could their medical decision-maker if they needed that assistance. So when you say to yourself, or when you have somebody coming to you, oh, we should have done advanced directive, I hate that we didn't do it. Okay, well, maybe this person's eligible for a pulse and we should discuss that. So that's a, an opportunity there. Um, but, as the common sense would come back to rear its ugly head, if the patient talking to you has capacity, and they say, yeah, this is what I want, and their decision-maker is sitting right beside them and says, No, I'll fill that out for them. (laughs) You smile, your most Southern of smiles, and you say, I'm so glad that you're here to support her in completing that and hand it right back to the patient that you're talking to. So we need to remember that when someone has capacity, other people are not allowed to impose their own capacity upon the capacitated. Um, So just keep that in mind. We want to be respectful of the people that we're actually talking to, um, which does mean you do have to talk to those People um, Sometimes, and we've all had this, sometimes family is very happy to speak for someone from a very good place in their heart, and one team takes over for another team, takes over for another team, and all of a sudden we've decided that person doesn't have capacity. That person's just not chatty. They don't talk a lot, and they let their family do it, so we want to make sure we're asking those questions as well. Um let's see the copies of the post are just as valid as the post itself so the other great thing about a one-page document is that bad boy is easy to copy at the nurse's station you don't even have to pull out a staple just run them through i usually will give them whatever i'm feeling usually it's a five Give them about five copies put one on the chart give them a couple throw one to the acting registration. we'll talk about that later, get that uploaded into Epic um, and give them some helpful ideas on where they might keep it. you know we we joke about the safe deposit box in Arkansas. That's a beautiful plan except that you don't live there and you can't get to that and nobody else knows that form exists. <laughs> um, so we were talking to the hospitals in Brazelton yesterday and somebody just really got on board with this pulse conversation for just a second. they said, man, how do we make sure that this is in the chart because like if they leave and it gets thrown in the trash, man, then what would we do? And I was like, yeah, great point. That's why whenever we fill one out, we need to make sure that we are doing what we should do with it, that we're getting it into the paper chart, that we're scanning it in where it needs to be. um, And that we're telling families, you know, here's some good places to have it. So um, some of the recommendations that I give folks is keep a copy with the medications. That's a practical place because when EMS comes to your house, they're usually going to ask you about the medicines. And then they're going to be like, what's this paper you've got stuck in here? Ooh, jackpot, that's a pulse. So that's a good place they can look. Um, if you drive around a lot, if the caregiver is driving this patient around a lot, have a, a copy in the glove box. If there were an accident, um, EMS often, if they need to look for information, will look in the glove box and they may happen right across the pulse and say, hey, this is a really important um, piece of this patient's puzzle for us. Um, their decision makers should have a copy. Yes. Their primary care doctors could have a copy. You can just make it rain, pulse everywhere. And mm-hmm. that is. <laughs> never going to be not help. Not every, you don't like to make them rain everywhere. Oh, no, no. I well, do.
1: <laughs> only because what if they change their mind, then you have to go back and make sure you, you would go it. back.
2: Now I do tell them you need to keep up with where you're, you're okay. throwing them out. Okay. Perhaps making it rain was not the best yes, analogy. Yes. Keep a detailed log of who yes, gets them, yes. but be generous. Fair enough. Okay. Helen and I like to work through things mid presentation. and That's okay. <laughs> that's, that's part of the important <laughs> conversations. Um, If there is a portion of the pulse that's been left blank, that is going to imply full treatment for that. So I had a family ask me the other day, we did talk about code status. We did talk about treatment plan. We did not talk about nutrition. We didn't talk about IV fluids. And they got real nervous and they were like, we don't need to complete this. Maybe this was a bad idea. So, you know, it's always voluntary. We don't have to complete it if you don't want to but you can also just do the pieces that are on here. And then if they need um, to have a conversation about the others later, they can, but I always like to make sure that they know that in an emergency or in an urgent setting, they would assume full scope of treatment for the box that was not um, completed.
1: This is yours. Oh, right. Well, it could be it could be both of ours, you, we know, can share. you know, hands across America, because uh, different states have different laws, different forms. Um, I moved here from North Carolina, and advanced uh, care practitioners could sign uh, Pulse forms. or so a nurse practitioner um, and PAs could sign uh, Pulse forms, whereas here in Georgia, um, only physicians. So this is something to be mindful of, especially for our residents. Um, if you are not you know, staying here with us. Um, if you're going to another state, something to be mindful of. Now, what is important to know is if, say, if you have your post form completed in Georgia and everything is good to go, um, and you go to another state, as long as everything is good to go and they can follow it, they will honor it while you're there. Now, if you become a resident and stay there, then you may want to do an
2: update wherever you move to. So that's something to keep in mind. We already kind of went through who gets a post. We talked about um, a life expectancy of generally a year or less, um, which they say 365 days, so same thing, um, if a person has been diagnosed with dementia or another progressive neurologic um, degenerative disease this is where the physician has to take over because this is the real high octane academia that comes with teaching you how to complete a form that has the instructions directly printed on each question. Um, So here's what your pulse looks like. So at first glance, it's easy to see. You see the word pulse at the top. It's a pretty easy one to catch if you're just looking through the chart really quickly. If you see one on the paper chart, that's great. Don't take that and give it to the patient and not make another copy because transport may want that thing when they get ready to come pick up your patient and take them home. Um, If you don't see one and you can't find a friendly palliator to help guide you, you can just Google Georgia Pulse. And it's the first one that comes up. You can get it in English. You can get it in Spanish. Make sure that you know what language it is in because I have had a few moments in my life where I said, I'm going to rock this. I've got my Spanish post and I'm ready to go. And before I was quite so familiar with it, got in the room and realized I was going to need an English one to tell me for myself what question was next. So think it through. The first link is code status. That's box A. Code status is probably the most commonly thought of uh, topic when we think about any kind of goals of care. Most folks are like, oh, yeah, we've already talked about CPR. Okay, well, there are other things in life, but yes, it's the first question on this form. It says, um, if the patient has no pulse and is not breathing specifically, so I know there's often other questions about whether or not to intubate, not compress, what if it's a terrible COPD exacerbation, that sort of thing. So, this is cardiopulmonary resuscitation, and right beside it, patient has no pulse and is not breathing, and your options are to attempt resuscitation or to allow natural death do not attend resuscitation now there is some teeny tiny italic under there that you may or may not be able to see this is going to come into play a little bit later when we're talking about signatures on the document and how many physicians need to sign the document we'll cover that in just a little bit Um, choice b this is the medical intervention so for the residents who are subject to my three care plans mcdonald's menu of items um, I will usually say do everything in full code Do everything, but don't resuscitate me or hospice care. And this form likes to follow that very well, which makes it easy for me. Part I don't love is it starts with comfort measures at the top. Um, And so sometimes when I tell people the first option is comfort measures and they're already ready to hit it in reverse, hey, that's not what we talked about. Yes, I know. That's why there are two other checkboxes that we can use. Um, So I try not to freak people out and say, now listen, there's three options that we have here do everything, put me on a ventilator, do everything. I wouldn't want to be resuscitated. Or just keep me comfortable. Now, this is a place where we have to be careful the way that we talk to folks. Because when you say, didn't you just want to go home and be comfortable? And they said, yeah, because I also want to be comfortable when I go home, but I do not want comfort care. Um, I do not want hospice care, but I do want Tylenol. I do want a heating pad. I do want all of those things. So we need to be careful how we're presenting that. And if you say to yourself, ooh, what if I get in there and I forget how to say it? Well, look, there's words right beside it to tell you. And that's so helpful. So you can just say, I'm just going to read this aloud to you. (laughs) Read. What does that used to say in standardized testing? Read the directions silently as I read them aloud. Sometimes I like to do that when we weren't getting close to people in COVID. I'd say, I'm going to give you one and I'm going to have one. I'm going to sit six feet away and we're going to talk it through. Um, so you can read through that and it can give you the specifics on those different care plans if you need that help. Antibiotics. This is where a lot of people look at me like I have three heads and say, why in the world would I not want antibiotics? And often I'll talk about um, the concept of infections, particularly pneumonia being referred to as the gentleman's disease. So if your brother died of lung cancer and it was really bad and it was a terrible death, and your cousin died of sepsis from pneumonia, and he was able to get out of here in about seven days without being too miserable, then if I'm diagnosed with lung cancer, I may not choose to treat that post-obstructive pneumonia that I get, because I may rather have the easier death than that, if that's how that person perceives, or what they perceive rather as an easier death. Um, So your options for antibiotics are no antibiotics, which says I don't want to prolong things in any way if I can help it and I don't want to take antibiotics, Um, which is certainly not the most common choice that we get, but it is absolutely a choice that some people um, are are actually sometimes afraid to ask for. Um, And often when this comes up, they'll say, do we have to, like, do we have to do that? Can we say we don't want it? And then they'll usually say, can you talk to my spouse about that? And don't tell them that I marked this. Mm -hmm. That's more conversation. Um, determine the use or limitation of antibiotics when infection occurs, which before people get too down in the weeds of what all of that means, that's what all of us do now. You think you got strep throat? You want to go see if we can get an antibiotic for that? Yeah, that sounds good. Okay. Or what will your patient say? Well, as long as it's not amoxicillin because that gives me diarrhea and I'm never taking that again. Okay, fine. You don't want that one, maybe a different one. So that really for me personally, um, Unless folks have a really strong position on not wanting antibiotics, I often tell them, you know, regardless of your care plan, that's a pretty good option to pick. If you want an antibiotic, why don't you just ask me or ask my caregiver and we'll go from there. Um, And then the last one, use antibiotics if life can be prolonged, um, which is pretty self-explanatory. Box D is technically two boxes, but I like to look at it as one big box. And the first one saying no artificial nutrition by tube which technically would mean no peg tube, no NG tube, no OG tube, all of these things. Trial period of artificial nutrition by tube, I will usually describe as an NG or an OG tube, um, because there's not a lot of situations where we say, let's just surgically put in a peg and we'll just see how it goes. And, you know, if you like it, cool. If you don't, pop it out if you need to. So I usually will just grab um, those temporary measures as a trial um, of artificial nutrition versus long-term artificial nutrition by tube, which is something that would be considered more permanent at that point. Um, and then for fluids, the same thing, no IV fluids, which is common on a hospice care plan where you say, we're not going to drag you back to the hospital to give you IV fluids. You can drink whatever you would like, um, enjoy it, have the Gatorade, have the Kool-Aid, have the water, whatever you want. Um, but we're not going to bring you back for the standpoint of let's pop in a bag of saline and see how things go and that's uh kind of a conversation for another day but that's due to some of the physiologic changes that happen with the body near the end of life trial period of IV fluids is just what we said before that's the phrase that you hear in the community nine thousand times a day oh i just had to run over and get a bag of fluids real quick and you know tune me right up and i felt great okay fantastic so if you would want a trial to see if it's helpful that would be a good option Long-term IV fluids gets us in a little bit of a harder conversation because that's where we start talking about TPN. And does everybody get TPN? Does everybody get to have that forever? Do people get long-term IV fluids? What does long-term mean? So sometimes that can spin off into a bigger conversation, but for the most part, um, and you may ask some of your other palliators in the room um, on your way out, but for the most part, I don't have a lot of people that are asking for that. Signatures, okay. This part makes me sad because I do love the GME world and I want residents to get all the credit for all the things. And so I tell residents, you sign this pulse. You put your name on it. You did that work. You deserve it. But make it tiny enough that your attending physician can sign right beside you. Cause attending physician is generally accepted as the one, on this form, um, we don't have any acknowledgement that residents are um, able to serve as a sole physician signing on that form. So sign it, get your credit, tell your attending what a great job you did, and then say, can you also provide your signature here? So when a patient with capacity is going through the pulse with you, they're sitting down having the conversation with you, they sign it, you sign it, copy that beast and distribute it to whoever you plan to. However, if the patient does not have capacity and you have a healthcare surrogate who is answering the polls for them, and that patient's form says they're a do not resuscitate, then you two physician signatures. This is not a two physician DNR. Part my feelings can call it a two DNR it does have some similar verbiage in it but please don't call it that don't chart it as that for sure um so does that mean that the other physician has to come into the room and have that conversation and all of those things with them no as long as it's a physician who has reviewed that case And also agrees, yes, this makes sense by saying, you know, this patient would be a candidate for non resuscitation, then they can sign that and that's fine. So, practically, how we run that is often I'll go do a post, I'll come back and page Dr. Gill, and we are often running our list together. And I'll say, hey, this is the patient that I have, this is the situation and the conversation that we had. Um, And I give him the pertinent information he would wanna know. And if he agrees, then he signs behind me. Um, We do not encourage you to just run up to some other physician randomly and be, hey, I got this form I need you to sign. We all need to be transparent with what we're asking each other to sign. Um, Because unfortunately, sometimes people have that, pin clicked and already on the paper before they even know what what they're coming for. So make sure that we um, that they know which patient that you're talking about. And if they have clarifying questions, please don't huff and roll your eyes and be like, just sign it and move on. Let's do our due diligence and make sure that you share what information that you need so that they feel comfortable signing that form as well. Um, and then down at the, the bottom middle box says patient or authorized person signature. The patient would sign there if they have capacity or the person filling out the form for them would sign there. Um, there's these check boxes down below to save you a little extra writing. you just want to check this is the person that's making these decisions for them this is the person that's completing it um and then you provide dates phone numbers that sort of thing the physicians also need their license number as well so another just nice uh sidebar thing to do is if you are going to meet someone to sign a post you might tell them for both of your sake You may want to look up your license number. I'm on my way. You're going to need it when I get there, because otherwise you're going to be sitting there waiting at the nurse's station while everybody pulls up on their phone to try to find what their license number is. So if you give them a heads up, we'll streamline things for you a little bit.
1: I guess yeah, something to point out, uh, because I know you were talking about as far as, you know, if the patient does not have capacity, uh, making sure, you know, like someone else, the, the surrogate can you know complete the form, Mm -hmm. I like at the bottom how it does you know you can check as far as you know self healthcare agent, spouse so that way if you're concerned about okay what's the relationship or who can. You know what has to be the relationship of the surrogate to the patient, we have those nice check boxes at the bottom to help
2: make that indication clearer. So I like it that. also helps that conversation along a little bit if it's a little bit fishy and you're not exactly sure. sure hopefully we'd start with that before we started doing the post but just in case this is your last ditch effort to make sure you're talking to the right person yes okay we talked about signatures i've already been through that so we'll just kind of scoot on past that just please don't say it's too position dnr um there is a line down there talking about that we can sign it verbally. So, in the times of COVID where people weren't here and that was tough for everybody, um, Libby who with Advanced Care Planning helped us kind of hunt down some information. And there is a clause that says that you can put some verbiage in that blank. There's not a set, you have to say this phrase, but um, the best practice would be to say, This is the person that I spoke to, which would be the person that you would otherwise have signed the, sign the form in person. This is the person that I spoke to on this date, this time, and they agree that these are you know, the wishes set forth by the patient or that the patient would want. um, And I will usually put the phone number and the date and time um, from that person. Then I make sure that they have a copy of it as well. I'm a little bit of a weirdo. And usually if I have to do that and I've got to do a verbal or a, a verbal signature on that form, I attach the sheet from the National Post information that says, yes this is valid because i am the one who would receive a post and be like i don't know about that i don't actually see a signature on there um so just having that documentation there makes me feel a little bit better so um whatever is your personal preference there but you can do a verbal signature if you need to now what we talked about about this Let's keep up with where we send all of our polls, but be liberal and make sure everybody that is going to have a partner in healthcare has one, make some copies. You um, can scan them at the nurse's station. You can email them into act underscore team underscore registration at nghs.com. They are lightning fast. So they will usually have that bad boy uploaded into the chart within an hour, which is different than if you just leave the paper on the chart because that gets scanned in well after that person has been discharged in a non-emergent um timeline so when you hover to discover over dnr or full code or whatever code status is it will show advanced care planning documents and that pulse will show up usually within about an hour and definitely by the end of the day i don't know that i've ever had to wait longer than a few hours for that. Um, and by doing so, not only do you know that it's there, but the people taking over for you later know that it's there. If the patient loses their copy or spills their tea all over their copy or anything like that, you can just print off another one. Um, so that's a, a helpful tip there. Um, like I said, I put one on the paper chart for transports. Um, I don't know, maybe our nursing friends could tell us um, how often EMS actually asks if they have a post. Um, but I did a little um, sidebar experiment during COVID when we had a lot of EMS coming to transport people out. I would see the envelope, patient packet, and say, "Hey, can I see that really quick? I just want to see if there's a pulse in there." And I had several who looked and said, "Oh, yeah, a pulse." I was like, "Oh, I like that enthusiasm. Let's make sure it's in here." Um, and so, uh, just you know, for whatever it's worth, make sure that nursing, case management, whoever's arranging transport knows um, if you see them in the hallway and you've got a second spot check, and make sure that they know that patient has a pulse. It never hurts to um, to communicate
0: just a little bit more.
1: Question. Cause you know, we're talking about now, what, how should this be documented in the chart? Or
2: how should many this... different ways? Well,
1: well, as far as the
2: conversation
1: within the yeah. physician though.
2: So, um, what I do is when I have my goals of care discussion, I'll say, you know, they have an advanced directive or they don't. And that's also where, you know, if people are looking at that area of my note for documentation, then I'll say we completed a pulse today. Um, and I used to say we completed a pulse today and it's scanned in the chart. But when 75 people had asked me, where do you find that? Of course, I educate them. But then I thought, you know, maybe I should just go ahead and put that information in there. So sometimes I'll just if I'm blasting through on the dragon and we're moving really quick and you can't stop a train that's going fast. I'll say we completed a pulse today that reflects code status, do not resuscitate, care plan, hospice care, um, and you know determine user limitation. I may just kind of say out those lines. I actually put together a dot phrase with the information on the pulse there. Um, that for me, I can kind of click through with a drop down, and I'm happy to share that with folks if they um, are interested in that. If you're documenting a lot of a lot of pulses. Um, I'll definitely be sharing that with our fellows. We'll have about 50 million posts that we do, so we'll make sure we make it as quick and efficient as possible. Um, but I do recommend having the patient in there in one form or another. At a very minimum, the code status and the care plan. Okay. Um, we talked about the um, that you can Google Georgia Pulse and it'll come up quickly. There's also a National Pulse website that you can look up here, Pulse.org. Um, it's got videos for patients, resources for patients. So I think sometimes we forget that not all information um, for healthcare is for providers (laughs) and this is a really great option where you can just refer a patient to hey yeah you know take a look and see I've had a lot of folks where I'll say I'm going to give you a blank post and let you think about it today we've talked about 20,000 things today. I'm just going to let you think about it. Um, look over it. I'd rather you not complete it unless physician is with you to complete it because we're the ones who have to sign it. Um, sometimes for a little extra insurance, I'll draw a line through the signature blank and I'll tell them I'll give them a new one later. Um, and then I may jot down the website and say, yeah, look it up. Take some time. Think about it. Especially if you've got that family member who has got three laptops in the hospital room and they like to look everything up. Yeah, let them do it. You know, If that's where their comfort zone is, sure, look that up. Play around the website for a little while. We can talk about it tomorrow. And make a list of all questions. Um, so I think that's, that's good for the folks who like to do their, um, digging on their own. So, um, in summary, we've kind of gone through the big points of how's a pulse different than an advanced directive. It's a helpful order. It's quick. It's efficient. It's something that can help a patient, not just where they are right now, but when they come back, when they're on an ambulance, when they're in a nursing facility, um, et cetera, et cetera, we know the way to complete it. We know how to distribute it back to the patient, how to get it in the medical record. Um, and that we know when it's appropriate to fill out a pulse versus um, other documentation for folks who may not meet the pulse criteria.
1: Yes, and also while it is a physician's order, we're all a part of the same team. You know, as far as that deep interdependence, uh, making sure that it's. For as you know, Dr. Pickett, you gave a good example when the patient's being discharged, making sure that it is included in their packet. Uh, while it's not a requirement for uh, different facilities, but just making sure that whatever documentation, especially if it is the pulse form, that it is completed and goes with the patient, a uh, copy goes with the patient. Um, and I guess, you know, as far as I'm going back to what you said, as far as making it rain, post forms, so I would say mindful rain. Um, and also, you know, if you, if there's a change in your status, again, you can revisit. Uh, it's not something that is, once you do it, you're stuck with this. No, it's a part of the continuum with, with the conversation. So
2: one more important thing to lay out there, if you mindlessly flung your pulse out to the general community and you completed another one later and you were concerned, Hey, what happens if somebody finds one of these pulse before these are your like soap opera emergency department situations where one says, I have the pulse. No, I have the pulse. And all of this happens. They're going to take the most recent pulse that was done, yes. um, would be the deciding factor there. So no, don't worry. You too too much about that part yeah. but if 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 you find yourself in a soap opera yes. that's how you would get your way out of it the jr yelling of it all yes <laughs> okay so at this point we're happy to take any questions that anybody has or comments or experiences you've had with the post we've got these comfortable chairs living room style up here so we'll just chat about it for a while if you need anything oh, we have a angie in the front there. yes hold on don't talk yet they're bringing a microphone I read
3: on your slide that the physician orders So if someone presents with the pulse, and this is from my nursing friend, someone presents with the pulse, and they end up on the floor, and the, so the physician will write for the whatever decision they've made about um, do not resuscitate, allow natural death, or resuscitate, whatever, whatever it is. So do they write the other things too, like no IV fluids, or
2: any of the other I would like for them to write that I would say (laughs) in practice probably odds are slim that not everybody is putting that in their note okay um but I would like for it to be um but it's just kind of one of those things I think that um if somebody's completed a post I'm just going to celebrate that and be really happy about it I'm not going to nitpick and be mad at them for not placing the antibiotic preferences um but hopefully it would be and one thing just to kind of go along with that too is they have the post Um, If they came in with a post in that situation, um, just remembering that it doesn't mean we don't have conversations about it. It's a good launch point. So I tell um, in the teaching that I give, I'll say, hey, you know, you don't bring this up. You say, hey, I see they have a post. Are you familiar with what a ventilator is? Mm -hmm. If we got what we didn't expect, you know, like we start the whole thing all over again and that's fine. But one of the, I'm going to say selling points, one of the selling points that I give for patients and families is I say, here's the hot thing about this document is when you've done it and you've had this conversation, we have spent a lot of time here. And I'm betting I'm not the first person who's talked to you about it. And they're like, oh, gosh, yes, we talked about this a million times. And they say, look, next time somebody starts this conversation, you can hold out this post and say, we've had this conversation before. I'm happy to go through this post with you. Now, that's not saying, don't talk to me. I've got a post. <laughs> Scurry along. But it is saying... You may not have to approach this the same way as you approach a person who has never before even heard that they're sick, um, but to say, here's a pulse, we've gone through this before. And so I tell folks, like, that when you have one of those, don't let people start talking about compressions and ventilators and you just sit on it. Go ahead and bring that out and accelerate that process for yourself and others so you don't have to go through that grueling emotional thing all over again. But yes, so ideally, a physician would have a pulse, they would confirm with the patient or with their decision makers what it says, document that send it right on up to the floor with them all right and
3: then one other thing you mentioned about the the ems or transport you know send it back unless it changed uh after covid that they've always even need to know if they were a dnr you know so you know they do so, need to so, yes, know they that. need to know that so i'm sure they would need the, the, the should they, they be should, should have, have a have pulse. pulse yes yes
2: yes it's kind of like that other thing about you know a patient transfers from another facility mm-hmm. and just kind of you know a tree falls in the woods. It's like one of the great philosophical you know. Well, if they can't, if they were DNR over there and now they're over here, are they still DNR? That's fun. <laughs> or does anybody know it? That's the other thing. Does anybody know that? <laughs> um, so I, I have heard folks that say, well, they came here with a pulse, but I can't honor that. You can absolutely, but you should contact their decision maker or them and say, hey, let's make sure nothing's changed here, just like we talked about earlier.
0: Thank you. I don't see any questions or comments online. we got one more here in the audience. I know,
3: know.
0: it's
2: a, oh no.
3: Dr. Pickett did a nice job um, covering this, but one thing stylistically for the learners and others in the room, be careful if we have found this with ethics and other things, be careful if someone wants to pick that, something that under all circumstances. So I have cancer. Um, I want to come back to the hospital. I might want time-limited trials. I might want this. I might want that. <clears throat> but this is good for advanced directives as well as for post. Sometimes people just reflexively will pick, I want all the things all the time. And we, it, it, if you're having a good, honest conversation, that's not uncommon. But as we see pulsed and advanced directives leave and go out to other environments, people don't actually know we've invited people into a a a time of pathophysiology lesson i always say it so if somebody's picking i always 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 under any circumstance want antibiotics or or artificial nutrition or whatever in 10 years i've seen one patient who that was not their desire it was their family member's desire that it did not really matter how sick how dead how whatever they were they wouldn't have brought back every time but that's really really rare so use your judgment and take the hey don't don't pick anything by default until we have another discussion you're going to get the full meal deal, but locking somebody in either through an advance directive or a post to I want everything always is a scary prospect.
0: All right, anything else? Thank you ladies, you did a fabulous job. Thank you.